This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have with us David Jenkins, who's a lecturer on political theory at Otago University. He focuses mainly on society with urban experiences and the concept of partnership. And he's also done work on the uh, Communist Party of India in Carlisle, which has been a very successful state compared to the rest of India. And we'll be talking also about populism and the possibilities within populism. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. Welcome, David. Thanks, Marvin. Thanks for having me. Could you talk about um, Carlisle and the Communist Party there? They've had a yeah, bunch. sure. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a there's a lot to say, and I, I won't claim to be an expert on um, the whole history of the party. So my interest was primarily in the way in which, um, as an active, you know, cadre based political party, it's been able to use um, public space to kind of to generate consistent support and consistent um, kind of community wide support. Th- um, as a communist party in in that state um but i mean the truth is is as you said it's compared to the rest of india it's a, a phenomenal achievement a lot of the things it's achieved in terms of uh, literacy in terms of uh, democratic participation it's it's um healthcare <laughs> what's that healthcare. healthcare yeah healthcare absolutely um in terms of um uh, female um kind of uh, parity with with males as well is um is 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 being backsliding recently but is still incredibly high um and so and and, and the uh, the international kind of development studies community has a model the kerala development model which is held up as this kind of low carbon high achievement um model for the rest of the world to follow um 
So, and I don't think, and I don't think it can be separated from the fact that the communists, the CPIM, the Communist Party of India, Marxist, has been a dominant feature. Not always in power, it should be said. It's fairly consistently until recently always alternated power with uh, the Congress Party. But it has been an incredibly important part of both the achievements of Kerala, but also in terms of the resistance against the BJP. The BJP, which is a hard Hindutva um, Hindu supremacist party, mm. has very little hold in Kerala precisely because of the activity of the communists ensuring that the um the 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 community itself the the citizens of kerala are um have basic needs met and this kind of um and and in particular it's it's a it's a prov it's a state with uh, 60% hindu 20% muslim 20% christianity and those kind of ethnic tensions which we're seeing you know um to at, at the moment in uh, mandipur in india um just do not have the same level of um the same level of violence um so yes i i'm I, I write with a an expert, an, anthrop an anthropologist called Lipin Ram. He's kind of my, he's the he's the expert. So, but um, I'm always just astonished by the the level of achievement in that in that state and and the the means through which it's been achieved, which is through an activist, militant, incredibly disciplined um, party base. That's one of the interesting things. The Labour Party in the New Zealand between the ninety. The end of World War One, 1918 and 1940, was that kind of party to a certain extent. Yes. And, and then, go on. Sorry, Marvin. Go. But then they lost it in the probably starting in the 50s, but certainly after that. Now, is this one of the problems that this Communist Party has kept their activist base, and also because of that, probably kept their policies? And the uh, Democratic uh, Center Party, Social Democrats, have not kept their capitalist base, and therefore have not kept their, to their principles. Right. Yes, I think that's true. I think um, having, you know, and, and having an activist base, and also, so this is what I have talked about in this paper I talk about where um, it's kind of their approach to public space. Um, the fact is that they keep through kind of these murals and through these kind of communist chalkings, through the fact that, um, you know, nurseries, a uh, very base, basic level, are kind of organized on partisan bases. So when you go to places in Kerala, you will see communist chalkings. You will see images of EMS, Nambudarapad, everywhere. And um, I think this is part of what keeps the party honest, is it, it's always connected to the history of anti-colonial struggle. It's always connected to the achievements that the party has managed to accomplish in that state. And so I think this keeps, I think this keeps the, the cadre honest. I think it keeps the, the party base kind of active. Um, and I, I, I think you're right. I think in contrast to what we see in, in Western political parties, that idea of a party base has just vanished. This idea of a shared history of of kind of working class struggle in places, you know, like in industrial places within the UK, these previous hotbeds of, you know, Labour Party affiliation and often in certain areas in South London and uh, East London rather, and the Clyde and Scotland communists, um, that's gone. That, that idea of a connection to these kind of radical traditions has really vanished. And so I think that is, I think that's a big part of, uh, of why the CPI. So you happen. had Tony Blair and. Oh my God, yeah. Tony okay. Blair, Roger Douglas, and uh, David Longy, who yep. turned them into neoliberal parties to a certain extent. Mildly neoliberal, some people would say, but certainly. 
Yeah, and, and with no interest in an activist party base. They had they had no, and they still, the Labour today. Yeah, I noticed when they had a leader who was interested in a, a cadre and party base, they got rid of him as fast as they could. They betrayed yeah, absolutely. him. Yes, I mean, uh, he was never given a chance and, and the kind of the way in which he was um, hard and feathered as some, you know, an international socialist committed to the cause of human rights across the globe, I think is uh, is a testament to just how rotten the Labour Party has become. Okay, what is populism and why is populism thought of as a radically right-wing movement? Yeah, so I guess this is getting to the meat of our discussion. And I I think, to be honest, um, we have to make a distinction between, um, you know, the populism that we talked about, Marvin, which is is part of the American radical tradition, which is often, which is kind of handled in one of two ways. Either the American populists of the late 19th century are described as intolerant, racists, anti-Semites and the like, um, in which case they can be dismissed, right? Or they are... That was what they did with um, Jeremy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's, 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 this is so exactly. This is an old tactic. Not, this is an old um, set of strategies. So that's one thing you can do is you can dismiss them as being racists and intolerance. And that goes against the historical evidence, which I'm sure we'll come to. Or you can um, cast them outside of your definition of populism. So that's what Jan Werner Muller does. And to, to his credit, at least, he recognizes that the American populists uh, of the late 19th century, the farmers' movement was a progressive movement. But then, what he does is he says, "Well, that's not populism because what I understand populism to be is um, is this anti-pluralist, necessarily racist um, type of movement." Oh, my great grandfather was a member of the populist movement, the Farm Farmers Alliance, which had uh, African American branches and uh, Caucasian branches throughout the South and. Scared the the and scared the uh, planters to death. In fact, that's when they brought in Jim Crow to deal with that. Yes. My grandfather, his all his brothers were drafted into the Confederate Army. He was the youngest, so he wasn't. And you see pictures of them; they look like peasants from eighteenth um, century Europe. Yet he had on his bedside, according to my grandmother, a biography of Lincoln and a biography of Livingston, the missionary from in Africa. And he um, he was a tenant farmer, and also worked as a mail carrier. And his boss actually was a uh, was there still had some federal jobs that were done by Afro Americans, and so his boss, his postmaster, was an Afro American. Um, he died of stab wounds, but I'm not sure what happened. It was, I think it was political, but I don't know. Well, I'm, I mean, the, the 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 history of that period would um, certainly bear that out. It was, um, I mean, in fact, I was reading just now um, in Thomas Frank's book on the American populists the level of violence that was brought against the um, the populists, especially in the South, was. I mean, astronomical. It was, yeah. it was terrorism. There's no other word for it. And so, this idea that the American populists, and you know, these these people were not these people were they were caked and soaked in white supremacy. These are not people that we would necessarily recognize as, um, you know, li- racial liberals or whatever. But they were um, many of them 
were committed to um you know cross racial solidarity and that was that was both um repressed through acts of actual violence and things like um ballot stuffing but also in the 1896 election which you know was run um through this this uh, through William Jennings Bryan as the presidential candidate they spent the republican party spent 20 to 30 times more on that um presidential candidacy than um the democrats spent on theirs precisely because as you say Marvin they were terrified by the prospect of an educate uh, you know a uh, an increasingly educated, increasingly literate, inc- increasingly um, articulate movement based on people like your grandfather, who were, uh, you know, well, my great grandfather. I'm not quite that. Well, <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> so I did have a grandfather who was at Ludlow, Colorado, and saw between 60 and 80 uh, mining families die in a strike. Right. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and again, that was something else the the populists did try to do, not always successfully, but they did try to link the cause of you know incredibly isolated rural tenant farmers to urban proletariat and to um, the the working class more generally. It didn't always succeed, but you know it was it, yeah. th- that was definitely a part of the attempt. When I see um, uh, statues on uh, plaques to Carnegie, my skin crawls. Mm. He he actually yeah. paid. Pinkerton detective agency and others to assassinate union leaders. That's yes. well on the record. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what's so kind of frustrating about um, discussions of populism and radicalism more generally in the American tradition is you you know this idea that you know socialism um, just couldn't fit in the American tradition. That's because a lot of the leaders were terroristically assassinated, and they were they were you know oppressed through state violence and and the like and and white supremacist violence so america has a strong radical tradition it just oftentimes doesn't know about it and i think populism is precisely the radical tradition that it needs to kind of dig into again what were some of the early populist parties in europe or were you considered populist in certain ways well, so again, it, I guess it depends who you ask. So uh, if you read a lot of the kind of the current commentariat about um, populism, it really only started in the 80s. So there's a guy um, who roots it in, a guy called Jörg Haider, who was um, an Austrian, a far-right Austrian, and he was considered to be one of the earliest populist um, uh, political kind of figures. Um, but into, I think that... What about the uh, People's Party in Russia? Russia. Oh, the Narodniks. Yeah, okay. So I guess so. kind of that's different. I think that's kind of interesting to compare to the American context because the American context, what you had with the People's Party there, the populists there, was um, genuinely grassroots, right? It was farmers, farming um, communities who realized that the Republican and the Democratic political elites were not going to serve their interests. And so they developed their own kind of political agencies, their own, you know, orators and and bosses and whatever else. Whereas the Narodniks in Russia, they were essentially intelligentsia who kind of went to the people um, and had this pretty romantic vision of uh, the, you know, the the Russian peasant um, as being kind of the pure people, as being kind of unsullied by um urban venality or whatever else and so part of the reason why the narodniks or at least a, a faction that identified with this kind of narodnism assassinated um the tsar alexander the second 
was precisely because what they wanted to do was um in order to, in order to kind of rid the the superstition the, the peasant superstition that, that the czar was some kind of godlike figure they thought they needed to murder him and that way uh prove to the the peasants that he was just a man and that they could um they could flourish without him and in fact what it did was it horrified the um the peasants and and um completely turned them away from that kind of secret society terroristic um revolutionary party so i think it's interesting to contrast the narodniks which was a kind of top down quite romantic um but very specific to that kind of period in russian history to the american populist tradition which operated within uh, the confines of the democratic process often in a way whereby it was um, repressed um and and it and, you know it spoke to a it spoke from a kind of bottom up grassroots sense of um the the rights of the quote unquote the plain people um so i think the tradition we should draw from is the american tradition and i think i think so i mean you can see this the the way in which um the australia australian party uh, the australian labor party i think at some point considered calling itself the people's party on the back of um it's kind of uh, as a kind of homage to the american populists so that's the radical tradition that i think um americans need to to learn of neurodenism i think was um a, you know a very specific time contingent um commitment by intelligentsia rather than ordinary working people is bernie sanders in that tradition yeah i think he is i mean i i've not heard him the language he uses certainly he uses sounds the language like, of socialism yes he does uh, and democratic socialism and you know in some respects he's he's you know a, a a pretty mild social democrat in some respects his kind of language around the debt ceiling for instance um didn't exactly um scream socialism but yes i think he does i think the language he uses i think the ways in which he appeals to kind of ordinary people the producing classes as it were um as the populists call them i think does um dig into that tradition i think the other example that's kind of interesting is the uh, john fetterman um candidacy for uh, pennsylvania senate because that was done in an explicitly populist way. So um, as in the rhetoric it was used was very anti-elitist. It had this kind of pan-ethnic vision of the people, um, the way he kind of, the way Fetterman kind of related to um, the the press and, and the, the population definitely came across as a kind of populism. Like he wears hoodies and shorts and this kind of, this kind of um, affectation. I mean, it's not an affectation, this kind of um he's always, he's always been that way. Yeah, exactly. It was a, it was a characteristic that endeared him to the people because he felt authentic and he felt like he came from the people. So yeah, it's not an affectation. He's from Pennsylvania. He's uh, he wears his shorts in the winter. That's what they do. <laughs> I had a friend in the Wanganui post office. He used to wear sandals in the winter and barefoot in the summer. Yeah, Dunedin seems like that as well. Dunedin seems to have a similar culture. Now, the um, why is why do intellectuals, often intellectual academics, have a sort of contempt for populism and almost a contempt for ordinary people? And Good. I mean, I, particularly I, I, people that they disagree with, you know. 100%. Yeah. I mean, that's a loaded question, right? I mean, yes, I, I agree with you. But the way they would frame it is to suggest, I guess they have a number of tactics. That is, um, they're not necessarily opposed to um, ordinary people per se, but they think that ordinary people per se are just ill-equipped to handle the complexity of uh of liberal democratic capitalist societies right and so 
what what we what we live with today is more or less the world as it has to be because of certain tensions that come with globalization tensions that exist between majoritarian rule and minority rights tensions that exist between parties political parties that have to balance the interests of business and capital against ordinary people right and so what what ordinary people would see as a, a completely contingent um pot- potentially unjust and changeable situation these intellectuals, these um, they want to kind of essentially apologize for the situation and say, oh, no, no, this is more or less uh, the way things are done. This is more or less the, the processes and practices and institutions we have are more or less the way we are going to solve these problems. And so that's that's the, one of their approaches is to suggest, to suggest that um, ordinary people are um, ill-equipped to deal with the, the facts of complexity that characterize modern society, right? And from out of that, they have this idea that um, people generally, uh, populists particularly, are opposed to the idea of expertise, which, and again, I think we can learn here from the American tradition, populist tradition is no. Populists aren't necessarily opposed to any kind of expertise. They're opposed to the idea that the orthodoxy, the orthodox means of understanding our world are the only means of understanding our world. And we see that in the way that um, many of the early populist demands in the 1892 Omaha party platform were constructed in very in, in ways that we would now recognize, recognize as kind of common sense, regulate the railroads, um, bust the, the railroad monopolies, um, bust the monopolies surrounding oil, move away from the gold standard towards a fiat currency, or um, the silver, um, silver is a more inflationary um, metal. And so all of these things speak rather to the ways in which populists can, in certain circumstances, not all of them, right-wing populism, I think we should reject outright, but the way left-wing populists can develop their own understanding of the current situation, develop their own critiques of the orthodoxy, and develop their own understanding of um, their own kind of uh, answer to the question of, you know, what should be done. Um, and so I, th- I think the contempt essentially comes from, in some respects, um, a defensive mechanism, as in these people are not um, impartial bystanders. They're, they're, they have skin in the game. And I think a lot of the time um, they want to defend a situation whereby they've, um, you know, they've attained a certain status as experts who don't want to be um, told that they're um, anything but. Um and what was the, and the other thing I was going to say was that, um, yes, and so they have this other idea that um, populists are necessarily anti-pluralist, that they're always opposed to this idea of a kind of competitive political situation, right? So the populist comes along and he says, only I can represent the people and all these other parties are bogus and, and incapable of representing the people. And again, for certain right-wing populists, that's absolutely the case. But it's po- perfectly possible for a left-wing populist to come along and point to the limited number of parties within a political field, like the Democrats and like the Republicans, and say neither of those represents the will of the people. Both of them are being captured by different di- different um, factions which don't represent the real people, and therefore the representative field is bogus, and we as the populists are going to come in and, and try and do a better job. And for me... Um, that's a perfectly legitimate critique of the current situation. And um, I think it's something that working on ordinary people um, often claim about their, their ostensible democracies. Uh, yeah. Um, right-wing populism often takes a, 
is often represented by a leader who doesn't come from the people. In a way, they're bogus, like Trump would be. Yeah. Um, and many of the leaders of Brexit, too. Yes, they're kind of, so Frank calls us faux populism or shadow populism. But it's very effective. It is. And in some respects, I, I'm willing to call that stuff populism. I, I think it kind of ticks all the boxes, right? So it is. it, it does put the people and the elite um, as the kind of the central um, and primary antagonism within society. So that's fine. It is ambav- ambivalent about the, the democratic credentials of the of the institutions and practices of liberal capitalist democracy within their nation. And it does think that it's going to be reacted against by those elites it's trying to take on. It just does it from an empirically flawed understanding of the elites who are doing the, um, who are kind of enacting these kinds of corrupting, this kind of corrupting activity on a democracy. And as well, it has a totally bogus and nativist understanding of the relevant people and a totally bogus and um, false claim to be representative. So I think, yeah, I think it is remarkably effective, but I am willing to call that populism. It's just the kind of populism that um, we should reject and we should join another form of left populism. One instead of the of- interesting things about Trump's election was that many, many of the people in the Rust Belt, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, other uh, Rust Belt states, voted for Obama twice, uh, Afro-American president, and they voted for Trump. And I've met people who won't believe that they voted for Obama and they voted for Trump. They must have always been opposed to Obama. Yeah, this is the thing. I think it's, it's there's, you know, Hillary Clinton said there's this basket of deplorables. I don't think she's wrong. Uh, there are a basket of deplorables that voted for Trump. Um, but there's also people who were just, you know, a plague on both their houses and they saw this guy coming. And, you know, in a in a, in a, kind of in a, a way that was full of folly they voted for a lunatic mm. and a clown um but at the same time yeah these fissures these cleavages in american politics are incredibly complex and they interact with class and identity and in in Didn't, you know, comp- uh, clinton's use of the word deplorables actually say a lot about the, the democratic elite yeah i think so and you can you can see i mean the the the, the snobbishness and the complete disdain for ordinary working people, you can see in the way that someone like Rahm Emanuel says, you know, these people in the Rust Belt, they need to learn how to code. And it's just, that's that's not a serious answer to, you know, deep structural problems. So I think when people reject the Democrats, they do it from a place of um, of understanding how they've been um, continuously failed by both these political parties. I think, Leonard, I mean, that, William Jennings Bryan was a totally misunderstood person in some ways. Um, he led the comment of the Populist Party, and I think he led it fairly well. And then he became uh, Secretary of State under President Wilson. And President Wilson ran saying, we will not enter World War I. And when Wilson entered World War One, he was the only one of the few politicians in American history who voluntarily left the cabinet because of principles. He left Wilson's cabinet. And people misunderstand also some of his reasons for opposing Darwinism. Uh, the, um, 
evolutionary Darwin because Darwinism is understood in many ways as the primacy of the fittest. And the yeah. fittest should be protected and encouraged, and those that aren't fit, it's just too bad. And I think people, um, and I think the way the intellectuals reacted to both Brian and to opposition to um, evolution uh, was harmful to um, to Christianity and harmful to um, the understanding of ordinary people, particularly in the South. That yes. If there had been a little more respect, a little more tolerance of people yeah. you disagree with, they might not have quite as badly. Yeah. I don't know well, that's I, true, but that's my gut yeah, reaction. That, yeah, and that's a, it's a complicated story um, because the populists... Um, so, first of all, William Jennings Brown, in being opposed to uh, the war, was aligned with people like Eugene Debs, who, uh, as it turned out, during the populist um, heyday, did turn up at rallies um, to support the populists, along with Clarence Darrow, who was on the other side of the Scopes trial, right? Um, yeah. Uh, against um, uh, William Jennings Bryan in that case. And so this idea that this is the thing that I think a lot of the commentariat do. They look at William Jennings Bryan, they look at the Scopes trial, and then he can be flushed out of history, right? He is no, he is no longer relevant. Or they can do with Tom Watson, um, who was, a, you know, who started off his, his, his political career as someone committed to the cause of racial solidarity. He said, you are kept apart. This was in response to black and white farmers you are kept apart that you may be separately fleeced of your earnings you are made to hate each other because upon that hatred is rested the keystone of the arc of financial despotism which enslaves you both so they ignore that part of tom watson and then when he becomes a white supremacist bigot um several years later that's what populism always was going to be and so the way the story is told of william jennings bryan of tom watson of the populism is a way of shaping our understanding of this period in order for it to be rejected in order for this third party movement based on you know mass politics could be um shunted away from history so yes i agree i think the um, the kind of the disdain that comes for people like brian is the same disdain that comes for uh is the same disdain that's pushing people away from um from any kind of radical tradition and toward you know um a certain kind of right-wing understanding of christianity uh I have a feeling that intellectuals tend to fear and have certain contempt for mass movements generally. 100%, yeah. And so, I mean, if you read the work of someone like Eric Hoffer, where it's nothing more than kind of paranoid um, delusion that's always one step away from becoming a cult. I mean, there's just, there's no respect. The civil rights movement is often kind of touted as this, um, as this exception, but it was described in precisely the same terms. It's not like that delusion suddenly went away. It was just after they won, it became a, a fait accompli, and so they had to give it um, the respect of, of, uh, of, you know, an historical achievement. But they were being described as, and, and in, in, in South African um, apartheid, we have people like Nelson Mandela being called terrorists by people like Margaret Thatcher. And so, yes, I agree. I think mass movements generally they they're understood essentially as mobs. Um, unthinking mobs, un, un, untutored mobs that need to be um, brought under cosh rather than what they are is essentially the, the main machinery for the social achievements that we've made in our, in our collective history. Is that a self-fulfilling prophecy? 
Yeah, I mean, what in what respect? In terms of if you treat mass movements as mobs, then that's what they become, or uh, to some extent, and they and if they have no authority and they have no success, the bitterness may increase and the alienation may increase. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I we don't have the same kind of associational um, mechanisms for turning people towards mass movements, right? They are viewed with a jaundiced eye. Um, and so many people will kind of turn away from mass politics precisely because of this this connotation that they are um, kind of unthinking and cult-like. And and so people just won't get involved in politics. Mean, because I mean, mass movements are the primary mechanism through which people can engage in meaningful ways with the politics of change. And so they do become self-fulfilling prophecies, or if not self-fulfilling prophecies, you at least the you know you remove a central plank um from the the kinds of politics that are going to effectively change things for the better i'm going to play a song now and then we'll continue okay great There's a man on the run and they're pulling the place down to find him He's wandered for the movement of mountains making a break He's unpredictable, as strong as the chains out to bind him This is his country and will of the people's his name Here's some fill of drink, might just get him talking. He's even suspected of lending a helping hand. A sad state of affairs, they say once got him walking. And if it's fighting for rights, will of the people's your man. Come all you strong, come all you feeble. Where can I find that will of the people? Come on and speak up now if you can. Where can I find that man? Come on, you strong, come on, you feeble. Where can I find that will of the people? Come on and speak up now if you can. Where can I find that man? Where can I find that man? Say he once fought off an army that threatened to chain him Through false political profits out on their ear But when times got hard there were too many too ready to blame him And the next we knew will of the people disappeared Come on you strong, come on you feeble where can I find that will of the people? Come on and speak up now if you can. Where can I find that man? Come on, you're strong, come on, you're feeble. Where can I find that will of the people? Come on and speak up now if you can. Where can I find that man? Where can I find that man? 
other people come out from wherever you are hiding. If ever you country needed you, it is now. Your children are lost, they're hungry and barely surviving. There are whips in the hands of a handful they scrape to and bow. Come on, you strong, come on, you feeble. We're gonna find that will of the people. Come on and speak up now if you can. We're gonna find that man. Come on, you strong, come on, you feeble. We're gonna find that will of the people. Come on and speak up now if you can. Where can I find that man? Where can I find that man? Where can I find that man? Well, that was the will of the people and some Jack. Commons Anthem by Jez Lowe. And we're talking with David Jenkins about populism. And you can uh, podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcasting, going to community or chaos. David, when you hear the phrase, the common good, what, what, do, what, what does that make you think of? Oh, that's a big one. Um, I, I mean, I guess the the main part of that is just that everyone's most basic needs and necessities are met. I think that's um, a minimal. And that can be, you know, I think in terms of um, kind of basic animal necessities. Can the common good also be considered the good of nature, the good of the, the, the natural world we depend on? Um, yeah, and I think that I think that feeds into our a certain kind of understanding. One of the things the present Pope talked about that the common good was the common good of the people, but also the common good of nature, the earth right. we live on. And I think those two are intertwined as well. I think in order for human beings to to flourish, they need to develop a certain relationship to nature, and having a purely extractive kind of um, extractive understanding, whereby it's nothing more than resources to be pillaged is um is certainly against the common good is is against i think um a, a pretty basic understanding of what it means to be to have to live a good life um so yeah but i, I mean i think the, the common good when it comes to populism is essentially that um sorry a left-wing form of populism is that the democratic institutions whether they be representative or whatever are kind of fit for purpose that they are responsive to the will to the to the basic needs of the people. Um, and so I think this, this idea that populism necessarily engages in the fantasy of a kind of general will, which is always going to be somewhat totalitarian, it is going to be completely um, unresponsive to minoritarian needs and rights, I think is, is bogus. I think it assumes that what we have already is something approaching the common good. And I think it's well within any reasonable human beings understanding of where we're at that no the situation we have isn't um adequately responsive to the to the basic necessities of a great many people most political parties particularly including the 
center left have not been have not felt responsible to the common good for the last 40 years yeah and uh, again um going back to the uk context there was recently um so wes streeting who's in the cabinet he said um no halt no, no false hope is worse than no hope essentially suggesting that the labor party is the party of no hope and so what we rather than the tory party which is false hope and so what we have there is a situation where the political party there's a poster you know it claims to represent ordinary working people um simply um vacating the premises vacating their 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 kind of rep, their institutional location which is supposed to be um, an articulation and an expression and a representation of the common good and that has to go out the window because um, of a certain commitment to a certain kind of orthodoxy um, whereby you know those basic needs cannot be met um, in any kind of substantive way and so, yeah. populism um, particularly right-wing populism that's mostly what we're dealing with right now unfortunately Mm. Here to say is the genie out of the box. Is we've oh, out, out of the period of binary politics where you have uh, two parties that both represent one a strong neoliberalism, one a milder neoliberalism. Is that out of the bottle now? I mean, are we going to come back to that? Yeah. So this is this is. This is, I think, the challenge. I think those commentators who say we're living in a populist moment are absolutely right. But their response to that is to move us back to a kind of centrist politics of appeasement, where, you know, the language of a class hatred of elite versus the people is to be, you know, soundly rejected. And I think um, that, that that is the wrong approach. I think most people at this point recognize um there is a, a pretty substantial failure of legitimacy, basic legitimacy of our democratic institutions, that they've been captured by certain interests that don't align with those of ordinary people. And they can. They, and so the, the choice within this populist moment is either to go right and a kind of nativist form of populism in order to, in order to kind of um, an, a nativist form of populism and a pretty superficial understanding of who the elite are. So, for instance, Ron DeSantis in his recent uh, autobiography, The Courage to Be, he suggests that if you um, believe in woke ideology, so you could be in a trailer, you could be um, a, a white, a, a, a black person in a trailer with no health care, um, unemployed, but if you believe in woke ideology, you're part of the elite, right? That is nonsense. That, that, is, that is not a serious contender for populism. So, But some people will go that route and they will go for that kind of nativism. And the other option is to go for a kind of left populism with a critique of a certain kind of ruling class, a certain kind of oligarchy, combined with a, a basic faith in the democratic competencies of ordinary human beings. I think those are the two options. You can't go back. I mean, that is what all these parties are trying to do. They are trying to get the genie back in the bottle and returning to a situation where people stay out of politics. Um, we have a circulation of elites who really can't be expected to do too much. Um, and I don't think that's that's going to wash. I think it. I think it will wash uh, every couple of electoral cycles. I think in the UK context, the Labour Party is probably going to win the next election, but I think it's going to do it with low turnout. I don't think people are enthused by Labour; they're just absolutely sick of the Tories. 
Um, but it's not going to it's not going to mend in any deep and structural way the fissures that um, that structure our collective lives. Do you, what do you think of um, the possibility that a progressive or left wing international populism or populist movement? You actually used the word cosmopolitan populism in one of your talks. Yeah. So yeah, and I, I ended that on a note of mm, despair, I guess. So I mean, this is an old an old problem on the left, um, which Otto Bauer talks about. This idea that people spend most of their time with fellow compatriots right so even though we're now linked with one another in you know in, in complex ways across the globe we still kind of share the same streets we share mm. the same less less extent the same share same neighborhoods but the same cultures the same sporting affiliations with co-nationals and so it's very hard to see the kind of international machinery that's needed this idea of a kind of you know the next international that's going to unite people that's going to have those kind of um those kind of institutions and associations which are going to generate something like a robust international solidarity and you can see the the attempts the noble attempts in europe with things like dm25 and the occupy movements that happened and the blm movement right this is all it's all great stuff but i i just don't think it can it can generate enough energy and enough um committed kind of mobilized uh, political actors to kind of take on the you know the, the the various crises that we're facing at the moment so um and i, I don't think it's, it's going to be the fault of any kind of left populism that it wasn't able to achieve um the necessary power but i just don't see where that's going to come from you know and, and this is this is an old problem this is something you know the lancashire workers for instance um abraham lincoln talks about this the lancashire workers recognize that they their situation their the fact that they were dominated was inextricably linked up with those of the the slaves in the plantation right there was no manchester without mississippi there is no mississippi without manchester and i'm not sure that people have that same kind of standing and starting intuition at this point that that they are bound up in the same um cycles of oppression and domination that working people everywhere are and it's it's hard to through the kind of the morass of all these different connections to think through the connections between uh, a factory worker in the south of china to a fella looking for work in uh in grimsby in the north of england so what do you think yeah, about the whole help. ideology that says that human beings are now not citizens but consumers yeah we're consumers we're stakeholders we're not citizens yeah consumers of the world rather than citizens of the world uh, going about that cosmo, cosmo, um, cosmopolitan populism and we, yeah. even when um center left people talk they often talk about stakeholders they don't talk about citizens or mm. we're not patients we're customers in the yeah, I mean, service. in the university setting that's very much what it feels like we're uh, providers of a service to people who consume our service rather than kind of co-equals in a kind of intellectual enterprise. Doesn't that destroy solidarity and the the whole idea of the common good? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I do. I don't know what more to say. That. It does. It alienates us from one another. It puts us into antagonistic positions. It misrepresents the relationships that we should be having with other people. And I, and I just, I think it's going back to this idea of, you know, 
is there a possibility for a kind of progressive left cosmopolitan populism we're working through you know several decades of some pretty ferocious neoliberal engineering of the human subject and you know it, it would be a miracle if after 40 years of stature a lot of english people weren't um bastards and unpleasant human beings that's what's that's what happens when you live in that kind of society and i just i can't see where that kind of countervailing force is going to come from because our, our mm. political class is absolutely bereft of even even the inclination to engage in a kind of mass politics the um well we're going to have change i think because for one thing climate change we don't yeah. and i'm not really sure that of the um, the structures of international, even globalism on the neoliberal level, when climate change hits seriously, it, doesn't it feel like any kind of democratic populism, left-wing populism that grows in society, does that prepare that society to um, get the best out of the changes that, that are coming anyway? So we don't become more fascistic, we become more communities and more sustainable and resilient communities. So I just, I, I guess I don't see where, so I just think the, the pressure that's coming from those climactic changes is, you know, it's structural and it's coming from incredibly powerful forces. Yeah, I mean, that's why they have climate change, meaning the, the oil states now, it's really funny. Yeah, right. Um, and so I, I guess I just, the, the the idea would be that you'd have these pressures in one direction and then you'd have the, the kind of the spaces that would develop um, where people could, yeah, generate kind of local forms of community and whatever else. But I, I just don't see where the countervailing forces are coming from. Um, you know, there are green shoots here and there, but the, the, the catastrophe mm -hmm. that looms is so enormous and it's so comprehensive. Um, you know, and these wildfires in, in the United States really are just for the West. I mean, it's already happening in mass numbers. I think there's been 60,000 um, deaths as a consequence of heat waves. Um, it's it's coming and it's going to be so radical in kind of its effects. I I just I'm, I'm very fearful for, for what gets what comes out the other end. But again, it won't be because populism. It won't be because of populism per se. It, it might have something to do with right-wing populism, but the, the problem will not be that um, ordinary people are necessarily and kind of constitutively incapable of participating in, a, in democratic institutions. It's because we never had any kind of authentic democracy with, with through which people could participate to begin with. That's what's going to be... Um, Don't we have to try to build that in any case, even if it's... A hard struggle doesn't that give us some hope yeah i mean that's it i mean the, what is it pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will or what the grass yes exactly yeah that's i mean that's all we're left with and so and but and so i guess part of it is i, I was so maybe that's all we've ever had yeah and that's and that, and that you know that that operated in a number of important political conjunctures and historical moments precisely to produce um a more just situation um, but I think part of it is also just I'm, I'm so demoralized by the British Labour Party that um, um, it's kind of putting, yeah, it's it's graying up my uh, my vision.
but yeah, so the British the British context is so demoralizing at this point that it might be um, swaying me in certain ways. Well, I have to have another talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got it. Well, I I think that crisis is can be horrible. Um, I mean, I my parents. I was born in '42, and my parents lived through the Holocaust, and were quite aware of it. So I know how horrible things can be, but I also believe that we can always act, try, try to act decently, and try to believe there's a there is a, a better world that's possible, a better world that's meant to be. Yeah. Well, definitely, I agree with the first one. There's definitely a better world that's, that's possible. Nothing about where we're at now describes the kind of the contours of reality per se but this idea of where we're meant to be well i don't know i don't know you heard who i was sponsored by okay yeah (laughs) but um also a lot of a lot of socialists have had that belief in a sense yeah absolutely Um, martin luther king certainly had it he did yes he he knew he was going to be killed yeah, and again, I mean, speaking of drawing on the American uh, populist tradition, is is no one speaks. You sent me that. Um, what was the the article called? The history of Jim Crow. Uh, the no, it was called um, "Our God is Moving On." Oh, okay, and it was that extract where he explains um, he looks at populist the history of populism and the way in which it was um, destroyed by elite interventions. Um, the bourbon democrats and, and whatnot and financial capital and you know he recognized he was not um an idealist and the kind of pejorative understanding of that word he was someone as you said he just thought there was a better world and that better world was precisely through an authentic form of democracy okay thanks a lot for coming on really i appreciate, appreciate it. it here's marvin yeah, yeah you got it this podcast was produced by or fm dunedin with support from new zealand on the air